Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Mary of Magdala, she was single, but under the clutches of Satan. Demons possessed her. They tormented her soul. They tortured her body. She had given herself over to impurity and over to Satan. Luke 8 records that Jesus Christ went around to towns like Magdala Magdala on the Sea of Galilee. He preached the gospel of freedom from sin. And Mary, at some point, heard that good news. And though a war raged in her soul, Jesus Christ, he won the victory. He cast out those demons. He forgave her sin. She believed and followed Jesus. And Jesus saved her. Jesus rescued her from her sin. Jesus Christ saved Mary, a sinner from Magdala, through the saving faith of Christ based upon the saving work of Christ and by the saving grace of Christ. Mary believed the gospel. Her soul was saved and her life was changed. From that point on, she began to follow Jesus and her, along with some other ladies, they began to take care of some of the basic needs of Jesus and the disciples. And they did that all the way until the very end 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, Paul reminded the church of the good news of Jesus Christ. He died for their sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. They can be saved. They are saved. Like Mary of Magdala. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds the church of the gospel. We all need a reminder of the gospel. Look at verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of, and remember it's the gospel. There is one gospel that saves. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after he went through the gospel in verses 1 through 11, The rest of the chapter, he applied the gospel, speaking of the future hope that we have for the resurrection of our bodies. And we asked the question last week, what is the gospel? And we saw from this text of scripture that the gospel is the good news that Christ saves sinners through saving faith based upon saving truth and by saving grace. And so last week, we looked at the saving faith in Christ that rescues us. This week, our focus is on the saving truth of Christ, the work that he did, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And then next week, we'll look at the saving grace of Christ. Would you look down with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Would you stand with me as I read God's word aloud? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas 
then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll bless the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning as it is proclaimed. And I pray that we, as a church, will continue to believe it. And if there's someone in here who does not, Lord, may this be the day when they look to the cross and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we celebrated that Christ saves sinners through faith in Christ. What are we saved from? Well, we saw last week that sinners are saved from the curse of sin, which is death. And it's so important for us to remember that as we transition now into the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, it's good to remember what he saved us from. He saved us from the curse of death. That's the curse of spiritual death. That's one aspect of it. That's the devastating news that each person is born into this world without spiritual life, which means you can't please God, which means you don't have a relationship with God, which means your soul is judged and will be condemned to hell for eternity unless God intervenes with saving grace. The curse of sin is also that there's going to be a physical death. Every one of us will die. And the curse of sin is that after your body dies, those without Christ will spend eternity in hell. That's an eternal death. And so the curse of sin is a spiritual death, it's a physical death, and it is an eternal death. And so when it says, look in verse 1, it says that we're being saved. So when we're being saved by Christ, that means that God applies the death and the resurrection of Christ to our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Being saved, that means when you believe the gospel, at that moment, your soul is resurrected. The Bible calls it, you are born again. And Jesus Christ said that in order to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That's what he's talking about right there. And when we believe the gospel, we are born again. That means that God gives us eternal life. He exchanges our sin for the righteousness of Christ. We are imputed with the righteousness of Christ. We are therefore then called holy ones, saints. Not because we're holy, not because we act holy, I should say, but because he has given that to us. He has declared that is true of us in Christ. We're a new creation. Now we can enjoy God. Now we can be filled with the love of God and the peace of God. Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can be saved spiritually. But also, being saved means that after our body dies, there's hope. And hope's not a wishful hope. It's a certain hope. There's hope that our body will be resurrected. In fact, our body and creation groans for that resurrection. And that's made possible because Christ died for us and rose again. And so there's a physical salvation where we'll have a physical, new physical resurrected body. And then also there's an eternal salvation in that we get to live with God forever. We get to enjoy the love of God forever. And that's all because of the gospel right here. And so last week, we, we reminded ourselves of the gospel that the gospel saves us from that curse of death. And it saves us through faith in Christ. He says, look at verse 1 and 2. 
He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And so he talked about this this vain faith, people who testify and say, yes, I believed in the Lord, but they don't hold fast the gospel. Maybe they prayed a prayer, but then they live like the devil. Sometimes the church gets accused of people that are in the church that are hypocrites. And you know what? Many times that's accurate. Because there's people who say they believe the gospel, but they actually, on a regular basis, they don't have that gospel change their life. They're not holding forth, they're not holding firm to the word of the Lord. And so he says there are people that have a vain faith, which means they're not really believers because they don't continue to hold fast to the word. But if you truly believe, then you will continue to hold onto God's word and his promises about salvation found there within until the day that you die. So in verse one, he says that saving faith, it must be received. There's got to be a point in time in your life where you say, I'm not going to follow my way. I'm not going to trust myself, my religion. I'm going to trust in Jesus alone. I receive Christ. In verse number one, he says, you must stand firm in it. So that's a firm conviction. You stand on the gospel. And then verse two says that you hold fast, or verse, yeah, verse two, that you hold fast to the word and the promises within. When I was in college, we were in Colorado. I was in Colorado with six other guys. And we were traveling on a team. And there was someone who decided they were going to take us repelling off of a cliff. And I'm not a big fan of heights. And so I didn't really want to go. But you can't say that with six other guys because I'm the wimp, right? So, you know, I pretended like I was okay with it. And, uh, and my wife would be smiling now because uh, she was in Israel with me and we went on a cliff and we were about to do this and I was freaking out. So, but I can freak out with my wife because she knows how scared I am. But these guys, I didn't want to let them know. So anyways, we drove up to this cliff and they were going to have us repel and they strapped us into the harness. They hooked us onto the rope and they said, you're supposed to go to the edge of the cliff and then you're supposed to like walk backwards <laughs> and, and then just step off, you know, and then kind of like you push yourself and you go down, you know, there's not a lot of work involved in it. You just, you just trust the harness and the rope, you know, and and they said, and if you're scared of heights, don't look down, you know. Of course, what did I do? I looked down, right? And so you look down and, and you're world swimming and I'm, I'm scared. I'm thinking, why did I just say I'm a wimp? I don't like doing this. But I had a choice. Was I going to trust that instructor, trust that rope, trust that harness and do it? And I, I did. And I stepped off in faith. I had I had repelling faith, you could say it that way, right? I had faith in that rope and that harness and that, even though I was scared out of my mind, okay? But I had faith. I had faith in that gear. Now, if my gear was not trustworthy, then I shouldn't have faith in it, should I? In other words, we must have faith in that which is true, that which is trustworthy, that which we can be certain will actually save us. Today, my daughter... Um, is flying to camp. She's on a plane right now. And you know, there's, get on an airplane, strapping yourself in. It's kind of scary. That's Izzy, by the way. It's kind of scary when you're on that plane and that plane takes off at a couple hundred miles an hour and lifts off into the air. You have to have faith in that plane, don't you? You could call that airplane faith. And, and the point is this, is that whether it be a harness on the side of a cliff or a rope or whether it be an airplane, if you don't trust that it's going to hold you or it's going to save you, then you should get out of it, right? I mean, if you're in the airplane and the, and the pilot goes, uh, we are having some problems with our airplane, but I, I think it's good enough, you're going to be running off that airplane, right? Or if you're looking at your rope and you're on the side of that cliff and it looks like it's frayed and that harness looks like it's not holding you, you're going to say, I'm getting off this cliff. And you see, friends, we must have saving faith. We must have faith that Christ is the one who saves us. You see, there will be a day when you take your last breath and then you will step into eternity. How do you know for certain, 100%, that you will step into the presence of God? 
Like, how do you know that your sins are forgiven? If I were to ask you, how do you know? Are you certain? If you say, well, you can't be really certain, what? Would you do that if you were repelling off the side of a cliff? Well, you can't really be certain if it's going to hold you or not. You're just going to just go for it. Or if you're in a plane, it's like, well, the plane wing looks like it's falling off, but you really don't know. No, you want to be certain. And what's our certainty? Where do we find our certainty? Well, you must place your faith in one who's trustworthy. One who has the power actually over death and over sin, over Satan. One who actually has already died. One who has already been resurrected to life. One who has the power to give life. And that is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ is the only one who is trustworthy. He's the only one who can save. And that's why in Acts 4.12, Scripture says there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus is the only one who can save. And if you say, well, you know, I think I'm pretty good. Or I'm going to trust this. I think that's going to be okay. Friends, the Bible says the exact opposite. There's no salvation in anyone else but Jesus. And so do you have 100% certainty that if you were to breathe your last breath, that you would enter into eternity? And see, salvation in Christ is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse number three. Here we, saw, we see salvation is based upon the saving truth of Christ, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what is that? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared. And then over and over the next few verses it says he appeared to them and he appeared to them. And he showed, he proved that he was truly resurrected by appearing in person. So you notice the gospel in verse number three, verse number four, verse number five, verse number six and seven. The, the gospel work of Jesus Christ is based upon documented truth. It's based upon documented truth. Notice in verse three, the death of Christ for our sins was in accordance with what? The scriptures. In verse number four, the resurrection of Christ was in accordance with, what was it? The scriptures. The gospel was prophesied in the scriptures. God promised it would happen, and guess what? It did. The gospel has been documented to us in the, in the New Testament scriptures. The, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is clearly given to us in, in a personal eyewitness accounts in the New Testament documents. The Bible has proved over and over to be historically and geographically accurate. And probably really the most important factor the Bible brings forth here in this text is that there were individuals who not just, they didn't just see Jesus, but after his death and his resurrection, they were able to touch Jesus. They were able to talk with Jesus they were able to see Jesus eat and fellowship. I mean, they were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And he wants to make sure that's very clear. And so he uses this word, verses, verse 5, 6, and 7, and 8, over and over. He appeared. It was real. And I have this question for you. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, here's the question. What do you do with that historical evidence? Like, this isn't something that we're just making up, right? We're not, we're not just getting a fairy tale book out. I mean, these are people that really lived, and they're people who documented what they really saw. He's saying that the truth of the gospel is based upon historical fact. That's what he's saying here. And so if you're not a believer in the Lord, I'm going to ask you, what do you do with that? Because you have to do something with it. Because the claim here is Jesus resurrected, and that means something in this world. And so look at number verse, or look at verse three. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance. What he's saying here, he's saying that the gospel is the most important thing. I mean, he's, how many chapters has he gone through? 14 chapters here, right? How many words in this book of 1 Corinthians? And he goes to verse 15. He says, listen, listen, okay, we've talked about a lot of things. Here's the most important thing. The most important thing in this book, the most important thing in the scriptures, the most important thing in life, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I mean, think about it this way. All of human history is centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, literally, we even, we talk about what date it is, and we do that based upon Christ's coming, his birth, and then he lived and died and he rose again. The whole Old Testament points to the death and resurrection of Christ. The New Testament looks back in hope upon the death and resurrection of Christ. A soul can only come to life by virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit applies the work of the death and resurrection of Christ to our life. Our, our world longs for the resurrection of Christ. The death and resurrection, or I should say this way, creation, not people. Creation longs for the resurrection of creation through the work of Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ is the most important. It must be the most important thing in our life. Listen, everything in our life must be built upon the work of Jesus Christ. We must depend upon it. We must proclaim it and preach it. It must be what is what our marriages are based on, our friendships are based on. Every moment of our day must be considered in light of the fact that Christ gave his life for us and that he rose again. And it must be something that we share with other people, and we must be willing to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. There are people around this world right now that are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ, and they are suffering, and they are dying. It's important to them. And if it's important to them, friends, church, should it be important to us? And it must be of first importance. And then notice what's of first importance. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There's an old parable about a church who decided to put a sign outside of their church. And they put those 10 words on that sign. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And they put that sign up because they wanted everyone to know that they believed in that. They believed the gospel. They preached the gospel right there. And every Sunday, they had a preacher that would get up, and he would go verse by verse, and he exposited the scripture. The word of God was the authority for the church. They were unashamed to preach in that way. They preached according to the scriptures. They preached the gospel, and at the heart of every sermon was the resurrection, or the, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, that he saves souls, he sanctifies souls by his work. But the story goes that over time, it just so happened that as the sun was, or the sign was out in the sun, that those last few words, those last three words faded away, according, or four words, according with the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And as time went on, the sun beat down on that, and that was something that was not able to be seen. So all you could see is Christ died for our sins. And it was interesting because at the same time, the parable goes that the church began to tell the gospel and preach the gospel, but they stopped using God's word. They began to do it in dramas and tell cute stories and 20-minute talks. And, and God, Christ died for our sins was still in the church, but they left out the scriptures. The sign continued to be weathered more and more. And over the years, three more words faded, and it was for our sins. So now the sign just said, just said, Christ died. And as those words for our sins disappeared from the sign, so did the preaching on sin. Yes, they spoke of Christ and his atonement, but they didn't want to offend people by talking about sin. And, and so they wanted to talk about love and how Christ died because of love. And they didn't want to talk about that Christ died for our sins. They didn't want to talk about hell and wrath. And, you know, they just wanted to, not offend anybody. So they left out that, and interesting enough, their sign, those words had faded away as well for our sins. And then more time passed, and dirt and some bird droppings fell on the sign, and the first word was covered up, the word Christ. So now all the sign read was died. And that sign described that church. They were spiritually dead. And oh, they might have a building and a pastor and evil pe even people attending, but Christ was not present. The gospel was not preached. The spirit didn't move. The, the church was spiritually dead. And that story is a parable of how churches spiritually decline. 
Because first, they give up the exposition of Scripture. And second, they want to avoid offense, and so they ignore the offense of sin. And third, eventually, Christ is just an intellectual topic or religious symbol. And there are churches all over America, and frankly, church there are churches in Simi Valley, that this was the the progression of their decline, and they are spiritually dead. Yes, they might have a building. Yes, there might be people attending, but they don't preach Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. I think this is a warning to us that this is the path that churches take when they're unfaithful to Christ. And this is the path that Lighthouse will take if they're unfaithful, if we are unfaithful to Christ. And so we need to pray that God would would put us firm upon his scriptures, that we would be faithful to preach Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. All ten of those words are important there. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, but there's three words that tell us why he died. Notice those three words. It's for our sins. See, the gospel is not that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. If, if, you just, if, if that's all it is, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news. See, the good news is that Jesus died He lived, he died for our sins, and he rose again. The gospel is that he died for me, that he died in my place. That preposition for means that it's on behalf of, for the sake of. The word for tells us that the great work of Jesus dying on that cross was a work of substitution. It was a substitutionary atonement on our behalf. Christ died for me. He didn't die for himself. He died in my place. He died in your place. He died as our substitute to atone for our sins so that we could have a right relationship with the holy God. And this is over and over and over in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Just, let's just be overwhelmed with the fact that Christ died for us. Ephesians 5 2. Christ also loved us. Christ loved us. Are you included in that? You you could put your name right in there. Christ loved Ben. Would you do that with me? Would you, when I say us, would you put your name in there? Christ loved. That's right. And he gave himself up for us. Isn't that great? a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, on behalf of us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. 1 Peter 2.21, Christ also suffered, everyone say it with me, for you. Amen to that. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. It's not every Sunday on Mass. It happened one time, once for all. The righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's you and I, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, Galatians 2.20, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me in my place on behalf of me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was righteous and sinless, But God the Father, he made Jesus to be sin. In other words, he put the punishment of sin upon him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let's hold on to that. He died for us. Trust that is true of you. Christ was the substitute for what we deserve. And what do we deserve, friends? We deserve God's justice for our sin. The justice of God means that God never lets a sinner go free. 
Like we watch the news and we see terrible things that happen on the news and someone shoots up a school or someone blows themselves up in a synagogue and we say that's terrible and we all long for that person to come to justice because God has put that within our hearts that we know that sin demands a punishment. A criminal deserves to go be punished. And God is just and he's holy and he knows that each one of us and here deserve a punishment and that is eternal separation from him. And friends, that's why Jesus came because he died on that cross in our place and he experienced God's wrath for sin in our place. So I think it's good for us to think about our sin. Like think about it, even this morning, some of you are sitting here right now I know even for myself this morning, it's like you wake up and you think something that's not true. You think about something that's not right. You desire something that's sinful. It was for those sins that Christ died. He died in our place. And it's with that, that in a moment, we're going to sing a song. It says, up to the hill of Calvary, my Savior went courageously. And there he bled and died for me. When we sing that, make sure you remember that means he died in our place. And what's the end of that? Hallelujah for the cross. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And after the atoning work was done, with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He died in my place. And here's the promise that John 3, 36 gives. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. God's wrath fell on Jesus in our place. And so if you believe that, that's just not mental ascent. That's saying, I give my life over to Christ. I receive him as my own. That's my, my life is, is not mine any longer. It's the Lord's. I believe in him. He gives us eternal life. But here's the, here's the warning he gives. Whoever does not obey the son, and what does that mean to obey the son? Well, he calls you to turn from your sin. He, he, calls, you from, he calls you to stop trusting yourself. He calls you to trust in him alone. So if you don't obey him in that way, the promise here is that you will not see life. That's life after death. But the wrath of God remains on him. And so friend, if you're in here today, this is truth. This is real. This is eternity. To so call upon the name of the Lord today. So the gospel is the good news that Christ saves sinners based upon saving truth. And then notice, what does it say? In accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament is filled with Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah's substitutionary death. I mean, from the very beginning, God promised Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he promised that the seed of the woman would come and it would defeat Satan. Right? It would defeat death and sin. That was God's promise. Throughout the Old Testament, Christ's death was pictured in the sacrificial lambs and sacrificial animals. The prophets prophesied over and over the Messiah would die. In fact, at Psalm 22, that, that's, the psalm starts off with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? It's what Christ said on the cross. And so Jesus quoted what was prophesied about him. And then notice in verse number four, he died for our sins, verse four, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. You see, when Jesus died, he truly died. Mary Magdalene and other women and the disciples, they witnessed his death. They stood there at the foot of the cross and saw and heard Jesus as he was suffering and then eventually died. They could hear as he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He listened 
in as Jesus promised the repentant criminal that he, that very day, would go to paradise with him. They saw his mutilated corpse as it lay, or as it hung limp on that cross after his death. When that body was taken down, Mary Magdalene and other women, they looked on as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prepared the body for burial. And think about what they saw when they saw Jesus' body. I mean, it was very clear to them that this corpse was no longer alive. It was gray. It was cold. I mean, have you ever stood over a body that is dead? There was, there, was, there was no room in their mind to think that maybe he was just asleep or maybe he just swooned or something like that. No, they saw that and they realized this was the end, at least in their mind. And can you imagine the confusion? Mary Magdalene saved by the Lord, all that power. And here's the body, the corpse, since has no power, has no life, has nothing. What, what is our hope? Where did the power go? What are we to do now? Well, the scripture says what happened. He was buried. And then what happened? The third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. The Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrected Jesus' body to life. And notice it was in accordance with the scriptures. Now, where in the Old Testament does it speak of the resurrection of Christ? If, you were, if you've been a Christian for a number of years, you might be able to list a number of passages that speak about the, the death of Christ in the Old Testament, that prophesy of that. But what about the resurrection of Christ? Well, actually, there are a number of texts. Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, the signs of Jonah. We could go through some other texts of Scripture. But I want to highlight one this morning. And actually, it's found in 1 Corinthians 15, it's an interesting Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled in Jesus' resurrection. Look down in verse number 20. We'll obviously talk about this in a number of weeks, but I want to highlight this now. Verse number 20, notice the scripture says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The picture here is that mankind... Mankind's sin has rendered humanity spiritually dead, like like a field that's barren and dry and nothing can grow in that field. And so it's like Christ came. He was planted in that field. He died and then he rose again. And it was like he's he's the first fruits of that field and he can cause others who are planted in that field as well that have died to spiritually come to life. In fact, look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, that was Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So what does it mean by first fruits? So let me just talk about this for a moment. Because in the Old Testament days of Israel, every year at Passover, each family was to come to Jerusalem and they were to offer a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, a one-year-old lamb. They were to sacrifice that lamb in the temple for the sins of that family. And then they were to eat that lamb at the Passover meal. Remember, they had that lamb they ate, and they also ate the unleavened bread. The unleavened bread represented that, that there was no sin to be in their house, in their home. Leaven is a representation of sin. But also something they were to bring when they came to Jerusalem during that time was the first fruits of the barley harvest. And they were to bring that as an offering before the Lord. And get this, on the Sunday after Passover, on the fe- that was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to bring that, and on that day, the priest, on Sunday, the priest would wave that barley to the Lord as an offering. And that family brought the first fruits of that barley in faith that God would accept them. Notice, listen to this, Leviticus 23, 11, 
And he, that's the priest, shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. So those acts of faith were pictures of the coming work of the Messiah. The Lamb, of course, was a picture of Christ, the Lamb of God who would die for our sins. The unleavened bread pictured Christ's body that was without sin but would be broken for us. The barley waved on Sunday was a prophetic picture. The Messiah would be the first fruits of the resurrection. So think about that. There you have the prophetic pictures of his death and his resurrection. But it gets better. It's like one of those commercials. I'm not going to stop here. It gets better. Because think about this. 50 days after was another festival called the Feast of Weeks. And you might know this as Pentecost. And on Pentecost, the people were to bring the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And they were to make bread. And get this, the bread was to be made with leaven. So here you have, 50 days later, bread made with leaven. The priest would wave that before the Lord. And guess what day that happened on? On Sunday. It's interesting to think about that. And so Christ died and he rose again. He died on Passover and he rose again on when? Sunday. He's the first fruits of resurrection. And then what happened 50 days after Jesus' resurrection? Well, we know that as also called Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached the gospel that Jesus died and rose again, and the Holy Spirit brought 3,000 souls to spiritual life. And so the point is, is that you can look in many texts of scriptures, but that's a particular one where it highlights the fact that Jesus was going to be resurrected. That was, those were prophetic pictures that the Messiah would resurrect from the dead, and then he had the power to resurrect those who were sinners, resurrect them to new life and forgive their sins. The festivals in the Old Testament pictured the resurrection of Christ. And actually, it was all over the Old Testament. Christ's death and his resurrection was woven into the temple and life of the uh, Jewish believers. Our faith in the resurrection of Christ is based upon fulfilled prophecy, based upon historical eyewitness accounts. The faith of Christians is not based upon wishful thinking. It's not just there's a couple sayings from a dead guy a long time ago. No, Jesus Christ is alive. And it's based upon the reality that he died and he came back to life. And how do we know that he came back to life? You might be like, well, how do you know that? Well, well, first of all, the Romans and the Jewish leaders didn't show his body after three days, right? Three days later, you know, Jesus rose from the dead. And they could have easily proven that it wasn't true. They could have just took his body and dragged it through the streets and said, they say he's risen again, here's his body. Why couldn't they do that? Because his body was no longer there. In fact, even the guards that guarded the the tomb even testified that something supernatural happened. And the leaders of Jerusalem knew that. And we know the resurrection was a historical fact because there were witnesses, and not just witnesses, but these were witnesses that were willing to die to tell the truth of the resurrection. The old saying goes, some people will live to keep a lie going, but no sane person dies to keep a lie going, especially not a large number of people. And all of the apostles suffered, and most of them died, everyone except for the apostle John, but they died because they testified that Jesus was alive. And and why did they testify to that? Because they believed, number one, it was true, and number two, they believed that it's the only hope anyone has for life after death. It was the good news, and they had to tell other people about it, and it cost their lives. And since that time, there have been thousands, maybe even I don't know how many we could say, maybe millions of people who have given their life for the sake of that truth right there, that Christ rose from the dead. Look at verse number five. The Bible goes through some of these witnesses, verse five, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so the Gospels record these different events of these eyewitness accounts. We can see the ones about Peter and the disciples. He's referring to in verse 5. You can look in the Gospels and see that. One of those accounts is that actually the night of the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples and they were in disbelief. They couldn't believe it was true. In fact, when they saw Jesus, they thought it, maybe it was a ghost. And Jesus says, no, look at, look at the, the scars in my hands and my feet. And he said, he said, actually, touch me. Jesus wanted to prove to them that it was true, that I'm really resurrected. In fact, it was even more than that. He gave them proof of fellowship. He talked with them. He actually asked for fish. He ate with them. He showed them that his body was truly human. Jesus is truly God and truly human. He was truly human before he died and rose again, and he's still truly human today. And so what he was doing was saying, listen, I truly am human. I have overcome death, and I have come to life. In fact, we, in Luke chapter See if I have it up here. Yeah, Luke chapter 24. After this event happened, the Bible says that he, that's Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What do they need to understand about the scriptures? And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then what does he say in verse 48? For you are witnesses of these things. Christ chose them to be eyewitnesses. And he's saying, go out and tell people this good news. And then look down in verse number six. Verse six, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Many scholars believe this is referring to the time where he spoke on the mountain in Galilee to the disciples. And he spoke likely Matthew 28. I say likely. We don't know if this actually was the event this happened. But Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. And most um, Bible students believe that, that Jesus said that to his disciples, but also to a larger group in Galilee. And that was probably this 500 right here. But think about that. Over 500 individuals, believers, saw him at one time. And this happened 25 years before Paul wrote this letter. So, so he's saying here that some of those people, in fact, most of those people, he says, are still alive 25 years ago. Now, what was 25 years ago from 2023? Is that 1998? Is that about right? Is that right? I hope I got that right. Okay. Thank you, mathematicians out there. And 1998, in December, there was a historical event where a president was impeached by the House of Representatives. How many of you remember that event, or at least you remember some of the details around there? 1998, you remember when the president was impeached, okay? Maybe about half the people in this room, maybe a little less, who knows? Well, there are people still alive today that actually could testify of this event. In fact, I was thinking about it. Some of these people are still in Congress. They're the ones that are in charge. Anyways, but it's a historical event. You could go and ask these witnesses and say what happened. They could tell you what happened. It's true. And so what he's saying here, he's saying, listen, there are people who are still alive who experienced this. They actually saw him. They were able to touch him. They were able to witness that he truly is alive. You see, we believe this by faith. It's not faith in fables. It's faith in something that was historical, something that's a fact. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of something hoped for, and it's not hoped as I'm, I'm really wishing. It's like, I'm certain this is true. The conviction, you're convinced. It's the conviction of things not seen. Look at verse number seven. He appeared to James. That's the half-brother of Jesus. And remember, James was the one who came to Jesus in the middle of his ministry and said, go home. Like, he was mocking Jesus. But he saw Jesus after the resurrection. He believed in Jesus. And then to all the apostles. And then he says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. The gospel is the good news based upon the saving truth that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So how do we respond to this? 
Well, let me encourage us to respond much like Mary Magdalene did. Remember Mary Magdalene, she saw him on that cross. She saw him get buried in that tomb. And she was the first one to go to that grave, that tomb. And of course, she didn't know what was going on. She went to the empty tomb. She saw it was empty. She didn't know what happened. In fact, she thought that the Jewish leaders stole the body. So she ran back to Peter and the disciples and said, his body's gone. It's empty. They stole him. And so Peter and John, they sprinted back to the tomb. She followed them back. Peter goes in and he sees that, yes, his body is not here. John goes in as well and sees that there's no body. And they go back confused, back to their home. Mary stayed around. Two angels appeared to her and then she turns around and Jesus appeared to her. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she thought he was a gardener. She didn't recognize him. She said, sir, she's crying. If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him again. And Jesus said to her, Mary, and she recognized his voice. She said, Rabbi, teacher. And the scripture says that she held on to him in love and worship. And Jesus says, go and tell. In fact, John 20, 28 says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. In church, when we ponder upon the work of Christ on our behalf, his death and his resurrection, it should cause us to grab on to that truth, to hold on to that truth in love and in worship for the Lord. When we think about the death and resurrection of Christ, for any true believer, it should stir up your heart with love. And let me just be frank, if you think about that and you're a believer and it's just like, oh, well, that's something that happened. I think you probably got to ask yourself if you're really a believer. Like the greatest work that's ever been done in this world on your behalf should cause us to fall down before the Lord in worship, but also to go tell, to say he's risen and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. And last, I can't end without saying this. There's potentially one or two or more people in here and your heart continues to resist this good news. Christ says, come unto me. Look to me. Trust in me and you can be saved. Friend, would you call upon the Lord? You might say, well, I don't know. I'm a little scared. Trust him. Fully rely upon him. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Let's pray.